James chapter 4. We're back in our study uh, through this short book together. I think this is the ninth message so far in the book of James. And uh, chapter 4 is is where I I think James kind of clears off a spot a little bit and he goes to work. Now that's kind of an old-fashioned way of saying he just got after it. And he's going to touch on some some issues in chapter 4 um, that were very real among these believers here and no doubt are very real among believers here. And that's the idea of conflict. Now I'm going to start the sermon today with an odd question. A question that is negative in nature, but necessary to get our minds thinking about the theme of our text today. Here's the question. Who are you angry with right now? I'm assuming you're angry with somebody. Maybe you're not. Who are you upset with? Who are you resentful of right now? And why? In your family, your own family, with with your spouse, your your children, your parents, your, your siblings. Who do you find yourself bickering with? When you gather with your relatives, where is the tension? At school, who are the students and teachers that make you upset? The company you work for. The office you go to. Who do you dislike and try to have the least amount of contact with right now? In the business you're involved in. Who's the competitor that keeps making you mad? In our church. Your connection group. The people you serve with every week. Your pastoral staff. Who are you irritated with right now? And why? Why? Why are you mad today? Why are you resentful today? Why are you upset? What causes us to be angry and to fight and and to quarrel with others, to, to just hope they get taken down a peg or two? What causes us to have those feelings? Well, our obvious answer when we think of that person in our mind or that situation in our life is, well, he did this. Or he did that, or she said this, or she said that. We're we're angry. We dislike people because of some action on their part. Something they said, or something they did. Or something they didn't say, or didn't do. But as James here writes to his former church members about the tensions and conflicts they're having with each other, he says that that the reasons for our resentments and the reasons for our quarrels with each other are much more profound and penetrating than this is what they've done. Or this is what they've said. Or this is what they're like. He says that if we find ourselves disliking other people, being angry at them, hoping they get taken down a peg or two, The reasons are not first and foremost in the other people. The reasons are in us. This morning we're going to discuss our role in the conflicts we face. We're going to discuss the consequences that come as a result of those those conflicts. And then we're going to discuss the cure. The remedy. The fix all for, for, for every conflict we find ourselves in. Here's the title of the message, simply Conflict 101. The cause, 
the consequences, and the cure. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. James asked the question I asked. From whence come wars and fightings among you? What's the cause? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? The cause of conflict is unfulfilled lust. Lust is a Bible word for sinful desires that rage inside of us. Did you know that our worst mistakes in life have at their root a sinful desire that is screaming at us to be fulfilled? And the same is true for our conflict. At the starting line of our conflicts are unfulfilled desires. We're ready to fight and we're ready to quarrel because we've been denied something that we want. And worse, the other person is getting it instead. Or they're stopping us from getting it. Or they took it away from us. Our desires, our our wants, they're being frustrated, they're being thwarted, they're being delayed, they're being denied. And we see the other person as responsible. So we're angry. We're resentful. We're ready to fight. Now, if you think fight, no, no, I'm not ready to fight. Well, look what James says in verse two. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war. Did you see James says ye kill and desire to have? He's using a military image. He's painting a picture of armed soldiers getting into battle formation, ready to go out and into a bitter campaign to get what they're after. See, we all have this innate self-centered readiness to fight to get our way. That's how we are. We desire and we covet. We want something someone else might have, but we don't have it and we can't get it. And so we're ready to kill. Maybe not with our hands, but with our words or our thumbs. We're ready to quarrel and fight with those who are keeping it from us. Maybe if you're honest, you want to be admired. You want to be esteemed. You want to be accepted. You want to be honored. But another person is getting it instead of you. Someone else at school is getting the popularity you desire. Someone in your church is getting the leadership or the influence or the ministry that you want. Someone at work is picked for the promotion or raise you wanted. Someone else is getting the date that you wanted to attract. Or maybe you just desire control. But someone else has it and it's made you resentful toward that person. Your husband controls the hours he puts in on the job, not you. Your parents, young people, control your curfew, who your friends are, where you go, not you. Your longtime friend controls the relationship, always wanting to do things a certain way, which just happens to be their way. Your boss controls the policies and he doesn't even solicit your feedback. Or maybe you desire success. And that's the reason you're bad mouthing a competitor. He's having it and you're not. His numbers are up. Yours are down. His share of the market, his sales volume, his client base is increasing while yours is decreasing. He's getting the reputation in the field. You're not. The boss is noticing him, not you. This is why we have conflict. We aren't getting what we want while somebody else is. So internally, uh, we, we want to lash out. We, we want to slander. We want to 
fight. We want to bring them down a peg or two. And James says our unfulfilled desires, they don't even stop there. They follow us into our relationship with God, specifically our prayer life. Look at verse 3. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss. That means you, you ask for the wrong reasons. That ye may consume it upon your lust. Sometimes we want something so bad and so we go to God and we ask for it. And that's not a bad thing. Isn't it Jesus himself that says you have not because you ask not? Didn't he say ask and seek and knock and then do that over and over and over and he's not offended by that at all? He loves when you ask him for things, but not when you ask out of selfish motives. You understand that that our desires in our heart, our unfulfilled desires can get so strong, so overwhelming that we won't just fight others to get what we want, but we'll beg God for it even though we intend to use it selfishly. And then get mad when he says no. When this happens, when, when our unfulfilled lusts get, get out of control and, and they cause conflict in our life, the consequence is devastating. Look at verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The cause of conflict is unfulfilled lust. The consequence of conflict is enmity with God. The word enmity means opposition. It means you're at odds with somebody. The verse here speaks of being at odds with God himself. You've got to get the depth of this. James didn't make a mistake when he used this strong of language. He uses the word adulterer. He uses the word enemy to describe those who have dealt with their unfulfilled desires in a worldly way of fighting with others to get them. In a worldly way of getting angry with others. In a worldly way of getting bitter toward others. That's how the world deals with their conflict. James is saying that if a believer chooses the worldly way of dealing with conflict, they have placed themselves at odds with God. You can't be a friend with God and fight with others at the same time. Now you might object in your mind and say, now hold on. You just told us that, that, that our conflicts with other people who have what we want, keep us from having what we want or take away what we want. It's with other people. Why bring God into this? I'm not mad at him. My conflict isn't with him. Well, consider what the apostle John has to say about this. Second John four, verse 20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. We don't compartmentalize our relationships. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God, love his brother also. John and James both connect our conflict with others to our relationship with God. The the consequence of conflict is not just a strained relationship with another human, but also a strained spiritual relationship with God. Why? Why? Why are those things connected? Here's why. Because that person you're upset with, That person you're resentful of is a person who God made in his own image and a person who God loves deeply. If they're a believer, you're actually messing with one of his kids. Parents and grandparents, you know this. If someone messes with our kids, they mess with us. Right? You don't get to come fight with Kevin and still have a good relationship with me. 
Now, if he deserves it, that's one thing. But how you treat my son will strongly impact your relationship with me. In fact, if you treat him like he's your enemy, you have by default made me your enemy. And it's the same way with God. When you fight with one of his kids, bitter towards one of his kids, resentful of one of his kids, because they have what you want and you treat them as though they're an enemy, you've actually placed yourself at odds, not just with them, but with their heavenly father. You might as well fight God himself. This is why Jesus said in his famous sermon on the mount that if you're in conflict with somebody and that conflict hasn't yet been resolved and made right, don't come to an altar and offer your worship until you first made things right with that person. As much as God loves your offering and your service and your adoration, he won't accept it if he knows you're harboring bitterness and resentment in your heart toward another person who has what you want or another person who's taken away from you what you want or another person who is stopping you from getting what you want. Your conflict with others interrupts your fellowship with God. You don't have an others box and a God box. Your vertical relationship is strongly affected by your horizontal relationships. That's the consequence of conflict. Enmity with God. That's serious stuff. How many vote we move on to the more positive part of the text? Verses 6 through 10. But he giveth more grace. Wow. Amazing. Wherefore? He saith, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye devil-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. The cause of conflict is unfulfilled lust. The consequence of conflict is enmity with God. The cure for conflict is genuine repentance. Listen, conflict is heavy. The message is kind of heavy today. Unfulfilled lust, it's weighty. Enmity with God is devastating. So what do we do? James says, here's what you do. You repent. And then he gives us a detailed explanation in the verses I've read of of what genuine repentance looks like. You know where repentance starts? It starts with the right motivation. Repentance begins when you're motivated by God's grace. Can, Can you imagine the readers of this letter from James after hearing the first five verses? You think it felt heavy in here. Imagine hearing this for the first time. And, and, and they're being introduced to this concept that conflict isn't everybody else's fault. It's my fault. They've been told, I, you got to stop pointing fingers. And you got to look towards your own unfulfilled lust. It's not everybody else. It's you. It's not your environment. It's you. It's not your parents. It's you. It's not your circumstance. It's you. It's not your church. It's you. Boy, they're, they're, they're feeling bad. And then he adds on top of that. If you're having conflict with, with another believer, you're actually placing yourself in enmity with God. And they're thinking an enemy with God. I don't stand a chance. This is devastating to my faith. This is overwhelmingly shameful. But then James says, hold on. 
your God, who you've made an enemy based on how you've treated his kids, that God is ready to give more grace. In other words, don't fear. Just because you hold grudges doesn't mean God does. God gives grace. And James says he gives more grace. Why did James say more grace? Here's why. Because where our sin is great, God's grace is greater. His grace always exceeds our failures. When we make a mess of things because we chase after our own unfulfilled lust at others' expense, God says, I've got grace for that. When we say something hurtful to or or about somebody we're mad at because they got what we wanted, God says, I've got grace for that. When we go behind someone's back to get what we want with kind of like a dagger we shove in their back, God says, yep, I got grace for that too. When we fight with a person who kept us from getting what we wanted, God says, I've got grace for that. When we go on social media and impulsively and irresponsibly point out the failures of a business that made us mad or a coworker that lied to get ahead or a family member that we think is a hypocrite or a boss that treated us unfairly. You know what God says to that when we come to him? I've got grace for that. For every conflict you find yourself in and even the conflicts that you yourself caused, God says, I have more grace. This is where repentance begins. It does not begin with shame. That's why I often hear people that have made a mess of their lives or their relationships. And I say, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday? And they say, no, 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 no. I'm not ready for that. The ceiling will fall in. Lightning will strike the building. I need to get my act together before I come to church. No, 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 no. You'll never repent if it's motivated by shame. You'll never feel worthy. You've got to be attuned with the fact that God wants to forgive you. God wants to redeem your regrets. God wants to to heal your hurt. God, God wants to mend that conflict. God wants to give you his more grace. That's where repentance begins. When you realize how open-handed God is with his grace, you won't run from him. You'll run to him because he loves to give it. And when you come to him, here's how you come to him. Okay, so you're motivated by grace, but then he gives specifics. Here's what it looks like on your part. Repentance involves humble submission. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That means you place yourself under the authority of God again. Watch here, in context. It means you realize that God will give you what he thinks you need. Therefore, if there's an unfulfilled desire in your heart, you're going to trust that God will meet that desire in his time and in his way. You don't need to fight for it. You're going to be okay with the fact that if God says no to you, okay, I'll be okay with that because you're submitted to God. This kind of submission will keep you from fighting others for the things you want. You're not, you're not going to wrestle with jealousy and envy when others get the things that you desire. You're not going to respond hatefully when someone stops you from getting what you want. Why? Because you're submitted to God and you're trusting Him to give you what you need. Repentance also involves steadfast resistance. James says, you resist the devil. This is what repentance looked like. This this word resist carries the idea of fighting something off. The best picture that I've been given that I like to communicate this word is is kind of that Heisman Trophy pose. Sorry, pose. 
And, and, and they're, they're running with the ball and the defender's trying to get them. And, and so they stiff arm them. And the next defender comes and they stiff arm them. And they're continually fighting off those that, that are trying to tackle them. This is the idea. The devil comes and we stiff arm and the devil comes and we stiff arm and we fight. Here's what repentance means. It means you start fighting your sin again. You don't just give in to those unfulfilled desires so easily. When the desire for control comes, you stiff arm the devil. When the desire for attention comes, you stiff arm the devil. When the desire for that position comes, you stiff arm the devil. When the person that you know got what you wanted comes around and you're tempted to get jealous or resentful or angry, you don't just let that emotion take hold of you like you have in the past. You fight it. And as you do, here's the promise, the devil will flee from you. That doesn't mean he'll just leave you all alone. It means your submission to God will allow you to gain victory over that unfulfilled desire that the devil has been able to use in your life so easily in the past. You stiff arm him enough in this area of your life, then then, then he's going to have to find a completely different angle through which to attack you. Because he's unsuccessful right here. Repentance means humble submission. It means steadfast resistance. You are not just going to give in to this sin anymore. You're going to fight it. You know what else it means? It means thorough cleansing. James says that when you, when you draw nigh to God in repentance, here's what you do. You purify your hearts, internal cleansing, and you cleanse your hands, external cleansing. Thoroughness in addressing your sin. Think about this, purifying your heart. You get right with God. That's, that's the number one relationship. That's where you start. You admit your sin to him. You, you stop blaming others. You, you stop with the self-pity and the excuses and the denial. And you admit your guilt before a holy God. And then you claim his forgiveness. Then you wash your hands of that sin. What does that mean? You make things right with anybody that your sin affected. Sometimes we think as long as we tell God, I'm sorry, I'm good. Not true. You can study what Paul taught the church of Corinth about godly sorrow. And he says, those who exhibit godly sorrow, genuine repentance, they are zealous about clearing the record. They are zealous about making things right with those who their sin has hurt, whether they meant to or not. When you wash your hands, you have a hard conversation. When you wash your hands, you give a sincere apology. When you wash your hands, you admit to that person your wrongdoing and then you leave it alone. And by the way, when you're washing your hands thoroughly, you don't say I'm sorry and then add a conjunction. Hey, I'm sorry, but you really made me feel that way. I'm sorry, but I just disagreed with you. I'm sorry. No, no conjunction. Genuine repentance means that you've made things right with God, no denial, no justification, no rationalization, no pointing fingers, and then you go to the person, whether that's a spouse, or that's a parent, or that's a pastor, or that's a teacher, or that's a boss, or that's a friend, and you simply say this, I am sorry. Would you forgive me? Yeah. Notice next, genuine repentance involves godly sorrow. James says, be afflicted. When you repent, mourn. Weep. What is he saying? Well, I'll tell you this. He's not being a killjoy. You know what he's saying? He's he's condemning a lighthearted attitude towards sin. 
He's shaking us and he's trying to help us see the heaviness we should feel when our unfulfilled lust has caused unnecessary conflict with other people. Child of God, listen, if if you can be at odds with other people, fighting with other people, especially believers, and just go on with your life as though everything is normal, that's a problem. If there can be hindered, strained relationships in your life, and you can come and sing a worship song without even thinking about that person. If you can come and preach a message in a pulpit... Week after week, knowing that you're at odds with somebody and that not bother you, you're not afflicted, then we can't claim that we're right with God. We're not right with the Father if we're cold hearted towards His kids, if we're callous towards strained relationships, if we keep sweeping things under the rug. Doesn't mean our relationships have to be perfect to worship God. Doesn't mean our relationships have to be perfect to give to God. It doesn't mean everything in our life has to just be prim and proper to come to church. This is a place for broken people with broken relationships. But it means that we aren't callous towards those things. It means we aren't cold towards those. It means that we don't sit on this side of the auditorium and the person we're mad at is on that side of the auditorium and we're acting like we're actually right with God when we're really still mad at them. Next, genuine repentance involves true change. Look how James closed the text in verse 11 and 12. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. I like this. There's one lawgiver. He's able to save and destroy. Who art thou? That judges another. What is, what is James saying? He's saying when we really repent. We no longer speak evil of those that we were once at odds with. We're no longer trying to bring them down a peg or two. We're no longer dealing with them passive aggressively like the world does. And you know why? Because we've realized that when we treat God's children this way. We are usurping God's authority as the judge in their lives. And we're becoming the judge and jury in their life. And James says that when we do that, what did he say? We've broken the law. He's talking about about the law of loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And loving your neighbor as yourself. You're not loving your neighbor when you're playing the judge in their life. You're not loving your neighbor when you're trying through your actions or attitude to punish them or sentence them for their wrongdoing. Hear me, Christian, that's God's job. That's God's job. James ends the text by saying, who do we think we are? Trying to be God. That's why repentance, it begins with humble submission. It's only submitting to God's authority as the judge that will allow us to get off his throne and trust him to avenge us, not ourselves. Here's what it boils down to. You know you're showing genuine repentance when your attitude and actions start to change toward that person. Doesn't mean you have to fully trust him again. Doesn't mean you have to be best friends with him. Just means you're no longer fighting. You're no longer resentful. You're no longer envious when you see him succeed or their kids succeed. 
You're simply loving them as God loves you. What's the cause of conflict? It's our own own unfulfilled lust. Somebody has something we want. Or somebody's stopping us from getting what we want. Or somebody has, well, rudely taken away something we want. And what do we do as human beings? We want to fight to get it. So conflict begins. What's the consequence? Well, of course your relationship with that person is strained. But more importantly, your relationship with the Holy God is strained. You're at odds with Him now. What's the cure? Well, the cure is not sweeping things under the rug. It's not ignoring that person until they just go away. It's not acting like everything's okay when you know it's not. The cure for conflict is genuine repentance. It's submission. It's resistance. It's cleansing. It's sorrow. And it's change. And then I've got to revisit the good news of the text in closing. Because a promise is given two times to the repentance center. James says twice that when we humble ourselves before God, He will lift us up. Isn't that amazing? When we draw nigh to God, what, what does He do? He draws nigh to us. He wraps His arms around the very cause of the conflict. Here's the last thing you need to realize. Genuine repentance invites God's gracious forgiveness. Well, I hope that if you're in a conflict today, You'll be honest about it. You won't get hard-hearted about it, defensive about it. You'll admit your role in it. You'll deal with the unfulfilled desires in your heart that have just gotten the best of you. You'll stop pointing fingers. And you'll humble yourself before God in genuine repentance. And if you'll do that, friend, listen, God will meet you with more grace than you know what to do with. The songwriter said this, change my heart, O God, make it ever true. Change my heart, O God, may I be like you. If God's spoken to your heart today, I hope that you'll just repent if that's what's needed. You'll seek God's help with that person (laughs) or that situation. Because, you know, in and of your own strength, there's no way you can get through this strained relationship. And so maybe you'll just use an altar today to... To just admit to God, Lord, I've caused some of this. I pointed fingers for far too long. Thank you for using your word to point a finger at me. And help me to do my part of reconciliation. Lord, I don't want to be your enemy. I don't want to treat your kids that way. Help me to love them like you love me. Would you stand to your feet every head bent?